You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Chapter 14. Just saw the, the glow from the snow out there. It made me think of that. In chapter 14, remember, we're still on Paul's first missionary journey. It's, it's awesome to go through the book of Acts and, and remember this, this, this great history of the early church. Uh, it really makes the missions trips that I've been on look pretty, you know, you know, preschool, kindergarten, you know, uh, you know, as we stay in, you know, nice hotels and eat nice breakfasts and, you know, uh, all those types of things, you know, and Paul's just like trying to survive and stay alive, you know, uh, you know, as, as we go through this chapter today, uh, you might just mark in the margin, uh, there, there's one word that really defines, uh, the, the final section of the missionary journey, and that is courage, you know, that, that Paul just continued on. None of these uh, threats or trials moved him, but he looked on towards that call of Christ, you know, to, to the great commission to get the gospel out to the world. And so as we're on this first missionary journey, Paul has gone with Barnabas and part of the journey with uh, Jonathan or John Mark uh, from Antioch in northern Israel, north of Israel, the, the region of Syria there, uh, sailed down to uh, the island of Cyprus. And there he, you know, was able to minister to Pontius, uh, Sergius Paulus, excuse me, uh, the governor of that island. And, uh, even though they had some opposition from the sorcerer there, uh, Sergius Paulus received, uh, Jesus Christ. And, uh, Sergius Paulus, or, um, the sorcerer Elymas was rebuked. Uh, then they set sail from Cyprus and headed on up towards the region of Galatia. And as they, uh, hit land, they came across the Taurus Mountains. And, you know, Paul, it's believed, contracted malaria at this point, such a severe case of malaria that um, his, his eyes went uh, mostly blind, or he, he began to have trouble with his eyesight, and uh, he had to have other people write his epistles for him. He even writes to the Galatians who were in this area that, you know, I know you love me so much that you'd even pluck out your eyes and give them to me. But even in the midst of having malaria and poor, poor eyesight and uh, going up through this mountain range to get toward Antioch in Pisidia. Uh, they still went there, uh, preached on the Sabbath there, uh, some revival, but also persecution. As we read at the end of chapter 13, uh, they, were, they were basically kicked out of the city, but they kept on going, Paul and Barnabas. And so now we see them come into Iconium and just remember, just man, the courage that the Holy Spirit gave these guys as they were out telling people about Jesus. Now it happened in Iconium, that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. And so, you know, even though in Antioch, in the last chapter, uh, the Jews rejected Paul and he said, you know what? The Lord is sending us to the Gentiles. And he kicked off the dust off of his feet and they left that city. Uh, even though he, he knew the Lord had called him to the Gentiles, they still went into the synagogue. That's something that Paul would often do. First thing, go into the synagogue where there's a people that have had a history of the knowledge of Yahweh and the plan throughout the Old Testament of the Messiah coming and dying. And so he would go and he would test the waters and, and share the gospel with them. You know, Paul always had a heart for the Jews, even though his ministry was really primarily to the Gentiles. As you read in Romans chapter 9, you know, he talks about this deep heart that he had 
for Israel and for the Jews that they would be saved. He says, man, I, I just, I have such a heart for my brethren, for my countrymen, that I would be willing to be accursed or go to hell that my fellow countrymen could be saved. You know, and, and how often do we have that type of a heart? You know, how often do we have that type of a heart that I would be willing to go to hell for eternity that the rest of Oregon, you know, or the rest of Prineville, if they could be saved, or my extended family, if they could be saved, I would be accursed forever. That is my deep burden of a heart uh, for, uh, for, my, for my brethren, for my countrymen. Well, Paul had that. Uh, Paul had that heart. And so he still tested the waters with the Jews and still would, would try to give them the gospel. Um, we're going to see that that has mixed results here, but we see that he, he so spoke that a great multitude of the Jews and of the Gentiles believed. And you might just underline that uh, because I think that's powerful that he so spoke that a great multitude believed or a, or a throng or a bundle believed is, is what the word means, that great multitude or a populace believed. You know, Paul spoke in such a way that there was now a population of Christians in Iconium. There had never been a population of Christians before. Isn't that an incredible thought? There had never been a church there. This is like new beginnings, you know, plowing fresh ground, laying a new foundation. And, uh, and he spoke in such a way, as the ESV puts it, he spoke in such a way that this great multitude believed. There was something in the way that Paul spoke that, that caused this response, this population of Christianity to be birthed. And what do you think that way was? How do you think he spoke? You know, do you think he spoke like a professor, you know, or do you think, you know, just this, these very persuasive, beautiful words or, you know, what do you think it was like? I would bet that it was full of love. I would bet that through his countenance, you could tell that he so spoke with love. In fact, after you see this man, you know, sailing a hundred miles on a boat and being persecuted and going through a mountain range with malaria and having poor eyesight, and yet he still is pressing on, uh, you know, it, it, it makes it more believable. It makes you want to hear the person because the message that he is bearing is worth the suffering. The message that he is bearing is worth being thrown out of a city. He spoke in such a way, you know, as, as he says in 1 Corinthians, you know, my, my speech wasn't with wisdom of words or persuasive speech that you should believe me, but by the demonstration of the Holy Spirit and of power. And that is a verse, and I've told you this before, it's just it's what I cling to. I don't have persuasive speech. You know, I'm, I'm always jumbling words around and getting them mixed up. And man, just even last service, I'm like, how, oh, just can't you just say it right? You know, can't your sentence just be a complete sentence? You know, oh, you know, who wants to listen to that? You know, it's not about my wisdom of words. It's the Holy Spirit's power that causes men to be persuaded, that causes men to believe. And you don't have to be a pastor of a church to have that power. You know, you, you can be a, a mail clerk, you know, you can be a, a dishwasher at the apple peddler. It doesn't matter. You can have that same type of speech by the power of the Holy Spirit. He brings to remembrance the things that you've heard. He opens up your mouth and speaks those things. It's all about him. Don't rely on your own power. You know, Paul didn't. And we know that from the, from what he writes in the New Testament. But he spoke in such a way. 
He so spoke that this great multitude believed. You know, there's, there's two different types of ways that people uh, share their faith. And one of those ways is, is a watered down, dumbed down Christianity that has just penetrated the church where we won't break out our Bibles. You don't even need to bring them to church. We're not going to mention Jesus or the cross or his blood. We're not going to mention sin. Lord forbid we make you comfortable, uncomfortable. We just want you to come in and have a good time. And we want our church to grow. And maybe somehow in the midst of it, we'll con you into Christianity. You know what? The world doesn't want to see that. The world gets turned off by that. It's what the world does. But when a person stands in the truth and recognizes that the power of the gospel is the gospel, is in the word, man, we will do nothing to water down the word. We will speak the truth and we will speak it in love. And we will let the Holy Spirit bring the word to bear on the hearts of the listener. And that's incredible because that's not just in a pastor's life or a preacher's life, but you can be a preacher wherever you are at The Holy Spirit can bring the word of God to bear upon a person's soul so that they are convicted the minute you open your mouth and declare to them the word of God. Isn't that an awesome thing? It's not by compromising that men believe. It's not by watering it down and not offending them that you can bring in and then like, you know, slip the new, you know, slip the noose around their neck or slip the trap around their feet. You know, it's like, ah, we got you. That turns them off. You know, but the church, when they, or the world, when they go into the church, they expect to see Bibles open and Jesus taught. And if it's anything but that, man, we're falling back upon human methods, human methodology. You know, the, the, the world isn't interested in eloquence. They're just interested in somebody that could just communicate them the word in a way that they could understand, in a way that they could, you know, grasp. Uh, the, the word and the Holy Spirit's the one that does that. You know, the, the world is looking for passionate men and women for Christ. You know, the, there's a story told of the 1700s when Alexander Huxley, who was this well-known skeptic, went to hear George Whitfield, a well-known evangelist, preaching over in colonial America. And as Alexander Huxley is is walking towards this field where the great revival meeting was happening. Uh, you know, somebody, some Christian shouted out to him, what are you doing coming to this? You don't even believe in God. And Huxley said, no, I don't believe in God, but that guy does. That guy does. And I want to know why, why he believes. You know, it's interesting because Benjamin Franklin wrote about George Whitfield's ministry. And he wrote that this young man, before he was the age of 24, would speak to crowds of 20,000 seven times a day, seven days a week. And actually, later on in his life, he teamed up with uh, John and Charles Wesley, and they teamed up together in England. And it's believed that uh, the revival that ended up happening in England stopped England from going through a revolution like France was going through, a bloody revolution. And, uh, you know, to just think of what God was doing through these men that were passionate about Jesus. They loved Jesus and they knew they needed to open their mouths and tell others about it. And it was that passionate life that caused, uh, you know, caused these, these tens of thousands to come together and to hear the word of truth. 
Some of you may have heard the story about a chaplain that was in England at a prison. And he went into death row and he spoke to this prisoner on death row and tried to tell him about Jesus. But the prisoner said, I won't believe in this God. He can't be real. And so the chaplain said, well, why can't he be real? The prisoner said, because if what you're telling me is true, that all men are going to hell, that they're that depraved, that there's no hope for them, they have a future of hell, and that all we must do is, by faith, believe upon this God who loved us so much that he died for us, and that, that you could be saved and freed from hell and freed from sin. Man, if that was really true, I would be crawling on my hands and knees across London on broken glass to get the message to London. But I don't see that happening. And so he didn't believe. You know, in a similar story, Albert Einstein believed that there was a supernatural presence out there that was responsible for creating the world. He noticed that, you know, creation had uh, pointed to a designer. It had such a design to it that it must have had a maker. But Albert Einstein refused to believe in, uh, in Christ and to become a Christian because of the lives of Christians around him. You know, he didn't understand how Christians could believe in this God that created all of this, the splendor that declares his majesty, and yet they wouldn't be doing all that they could to declare the world about this God. And so Albert Einstein wouldn't receive Christ, and he died in his sins. As far as we know, he died in his sins, not a Christian. You know, the world wants to see passion, but passion's not something we can just muster up in ourselves. I'm going to get really emotional. I'm just going to start crying or I'm really going to do it this time. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Passion is just something that comes as you spend time with someone you love. How, how passionate are you about your wife or about your husband or about your kids? You know, the more you spend time with them, the more passionate you are about them. The more you love them, the deeper you love them. The more time you spend with Jesus observing who he is and with what selfless love he gave all that he has and in humility came and served the world to the point of death on the cross. Man, the more you know about that, the more you just want to love him. And the more you just want to tell people about this amazing salvation that comes through him. You know, passion is just something that is birthed out of a relationship with Christ. I'm not talking about emotion. You know, so often we have emotion without the motion. You know, we need both. And emotion is just a result of passion about Jesus. Be passionate about Jesus. And, and Paul spoke in such a way that, you know, his preaching was logic on fire. You know, as Charles Spurgeon said, you know, be on fire for God and the world will come to watch you burn. Paul was a guy that was on fire for God. He didn't just, you know, go to the uh, acquire the fire meeting, you know, once a year and get really pumped up and then and then get really pumped up the next year. You know, that's not what he did. He his life was fire for God. Every day, every minute, he didn't count anything that he had his own, but he considered it all was Christ. To live was Christ, to die was gain. It's all about Jesus, every second, every day, and I gotta get the word out there. And his life was an example of his passion. And he was able to speak in such a way that these multitudes would believe. And so as he preached, this this bundle of people or this population believed but, verse 2, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brethren. So, some believed, 
but some didn't. So don't, you know, don't be surprised when you're sharing the gospel. You got some people that are really excited and you got some people that hate it. You got some people that disbelieve. You know, as a, as a Bible teacher, I see that all the time. I say people that are just like, oh yeah, oh, oh, yeah. you know, you just tell them the countenance and the way, that, then you got people that are just like, show me the door, you know, <laughs> let's wrap this baby up. I got stuff to do, you know, some just, they don't believe it just happens. Don't be surprised when that's the case. You know, there's two different hearts that hear the word as it's preached. One is wax and another is clay. You know, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. You know, how many times do we come to the word and the word just melts us, man? And the word forms us, the word shapes us. How many times are there people that they come and they hear the word and they won't repent? That is us sometimes. And every time we hear the word and we're convicted by the Holy Spirit and we don't repent, our heart is hardened just a little bit more. There's those two different hearts that hear the word every time it's preached. But these Jews came, they poisoned the minds, they stirred up the Gentiles, and they poisoned their minds against the brethren. What an interesting phrase. They poisoned their minds against the brethren or against the Christians. And you know, wherever there is a great work of God, there will be opposition. You know, the enemy will rise up against it. Don't be surprised about that. You know, the Lord, as much as the Lord loves what's going on in this church and what's happening here, the enemy hates it. The enemy isn't impressed with what's happening here. The enemy doesn't think it's cute. The enemy hates it and he's going to do everything he can to destroy it. He steals, he kills, and he destroys He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we are ignorant to think that he likes what's happening here and that he's not going to oppose and he's not going to stir up division within us and bickering amongst us and try to eat us apart from the inside like a cancer. And here he tried to do that. He tried to, uh, you know, the enemy, he he poisoned these these minds against the Christians And you know, the the word tells us that the unregenerate man's tongue is an open tomb. Their tongue will, uh, practices deceits and that within their lips are the poisons of asps. In James chapter three, verse eight, it says, no one can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. You ever thought about that, about your tongue? How your tongue can be an unruly evil full of deadly poison. We can put bits in horses' mouths and control that steed. You know, we can make it do what we want. But, you know, we've got this little tiny flap of flesh in our mouth and it'll just say things that will ruin men, ruin women, ruin churches, ruin kingdoms, bring forth death. You know, you know, as James tells us, it's such a tiny little member, but it, you know, it does such great, horrible things. You know, like a, like a ship that has that tiny little rudder in the back. Whenever way that tiny little rudder turns, turns the whole giant ship, you know, or, you know, how many of you have seen forest fires or a lot of you guys have been on fire crews, you know, you know that a whole forest can be demolished by a dude flicking his cigarette out the window and that tiny little spark, whoosh. That's our tongue. That's how powerful our tongue is. And we need to be so cautious with our tongue as James tells us. And how often does our tongue poison people's minds against others? There's a quick little 
quick little, you know, we think it's a little, we call them, you know, white got there's white lies and there's white gossips, right? You know, there's these little, it's not, I'm not like really trying to destroy this person as I tell you this story about him, but I want you to know it's pretty embarrassing about them, or I want you to know I'm ticked off about it, or I want you to know that, you know, this annoys me about them. And so I'm just going to let you know, okay? And man, I just find myself doing that and I'm so convicted, you know, like, oh, what am I doing? What am I doing? I'm poisoning their mind. And you know what's funny? This happens all the time. When you don't put that to death the minute it starts, when you don't put the antidote in there and stop the poison, the next time you see the person you've been poisoned against, does anybody bear witness? You, the next time you see them, you're like, oh, 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 ooh, that annoys me. Yeah, you're right. That annoys me or that frustrates me or that ticks me off too. It's a horrible, horrible thing that, that our tongue can stir poison in our mind against a brother or against a sister. And, you know, we've been mentioning this as we've been going through the book of Acts, as we've studied Barnabas and how Barnabas was always such an encourager. You know, and we've just challenged ourselves. Let's be encouragers. Let's not be critical and discouraging. Let's be encouraging to people. And whenever we find ourselves being critical or being gossiping, you know, let's put that to death. I think it's Proverbs chapter 24 tells us that, you know, the words of a talebearer or of a gossip are like tasty little trifles. Anybody bear witness to that? The minute some gossip starts up, your, your ears perk up and you're like, oh yeah, tell me more. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, 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 they did that. Oh, they said that. Oh, oh, you know, but why is that? Why is that enjoyable? I don't know. It's so it's sin, isn't it? You know, oh, oh, it's like a tasty trifle. Mm, Yeah. Tell me more. Tell me more. That's our flesh by the spirit. We need to put to death that when it happens, you know, and we've been working on just with each other. Like the minute we start hearing things, let's, Hey, 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 you know, no, no, I, I'm man. I fall into this too, but Hey, let's just not talk about that. Or, or the minute you catch yourself doing it. Oh, I'm sorry. I have no right to say that about that person. Or man, I'm poisoning your mind against them. I'm sorry about that. We, you know, let's all just admit we're all gossipers. We all think that, you know, gossip is tasty trifle. And just, man, when we start hearing it, whoa, whoa, let's stop. Let's stop. Stop. Okay. Oh, whoa, we're more, you know, thank goodness. The Holy spirit stopped that before it started. And, uh, and man, we've, we've got to be, you know, we've got to allow the Lord to, to, Get that out of us because the enemy wants to divide through poisoning our minds against each other. You know, praise the Lord. Even within my circles of friendship, you know, we're finding ourselves just, oh, okay, well, let's stop. Let's stop. Okay, man, we almost, yeah, yeah, let's not gossip about this, buddy. You know, I don't want to ruin your mind about this person. I don't want to poison your well about this person. Let's, let's stop. You know, we love them. We love them. Yeah, they're just great, great. <laughs> so, you know, these guys, the, the ministry was hindered through poisoned minds through this gossip against the the ministry but as you read on here it says that uh, verse three therefore they stayed there a long time speaking boldly in the lord and so what did they do when all this gossip and slander and hindrance to the ministry happened you know did they oh i can't believe they said that about us. yeah we'll show you we're out of here you know what'd they do they stayed there and they said, here's the lie that's out there against us. We're going to stay here and we're going to love on this people and we're going to prove them otherwise, in a sense, sucking the poison out. We're going to suck this poison out. We're going to show them the truth. We're going to show them the gospel. We're going to show them the love of Christ. And so they stayed there a long time and uh, spoke. they spoke boldly, which is just, man, a theme of the book of Acts. They had power to be witnesses to the world. They had courage 
in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace by granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And so the emphasis here is not on the signs and the wonders, but it all points back to the word of his grace. The, the word of grace here. Man, we, just yesterday, we just spent some time as, as men at the men's group just looking at grace. How when you look at the gospel, how, how you know, there's a, a holy, righteous God that created us. But we, instead of worshiping him in what was, what was right, we worship the created thing. You know, we worship man, we worship objects, we slapped God in the face with our rebellion, we spit in his face, and we were at war with God. But while we were still sinners, while we were still at war with God, Christ came. God came in the flesh, and he served us, and he loved us, and he laid down his life as a ransom for us, his blood buying us, and forgiving us of our sins if we would repent of our sins. And believe on the Lord Jesus, we would be saved. And as you look at that, the gospel, you would, you'll notice we had no part in that at all except to make things bad. The only thing that good came out of it was because of grace, was because of God's unearned favor towards us. We did nothing to earn his favor. We did nothing to, uh, to, to deserve the right to be called sons and daughters of God. If that was the case, then God would have owed us as a debt. And God is a debtor to no man. It's all about grace. And we just look even more, man, it's by grace that we're even alive. It's by grace that, you know, we're in peace right now. It's by grace that we have breath. You know, it's, it's, it's grace. He holds everything together. Everything good is a gift from the Father of lights, as Ephesians tells us. If it's good, it's from him. He even holds back the wicked from doing more wicked. Praise God for that. And so as you look at grace, man, that is what needs to be preached to us. We need to be taught grace. We need to be taught. It's not about our works or I've done this or I've done that or I haven't done this or I haven't done that. And therefore God relates to me and loves me based on that scale. No, that is works-based self-righteousness. That's not what Paul preached. Paul preached grace. That even when we were at war with him, he loved us and died for us. And so as they were there, they were preaching boldly the word of this grace. Then the Lord granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. In fact, the the verse says that those signs and those wonders substantiated the gospel of grace. And that's just what a sign and wonder does. We've learned that, right? We're getting that. A sign and wonder is to validate the gospel, never to replace the gospel. If you think about what a sign is, what is a sign? A sign points us somewhere or a sign leads us somewhere. The sign is not the end of itself. You know, we're out driving around. There's signs everywhere. You stop and you get out and you're like, we found the sign. And then every comes around, yeah, we found it too. What do we do? We don't need to do anything. We found the sign. You know, yeah, you still need to do something. You got to follow where the sign's telling you to go. What about a wonder? What does a wonder make us do? It makes us, makes us wonder. You know, when it happens, we don't just go, ooh. Now what? You know, uh, let's get more of these things. Let's get more wonders. You know, no, the wonder makes us wonder who in the world is powerful enough to do this thing. 
It's not the healing that's incredible. It's the one who did the healing that's incredible. I want to know that guy. I want to be on his side. The signs and the wonders substantiate the word of grace. They validate the word of grace. We always want to make sure that that's the case, that we're pointing things to Christ. And as the word of grace went forth and it was validated, it says the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part sided with the apostles. Ever been in that situation before? A whole city divided, almost a civil war in the midst of this town. They became aware of it and they fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lycaonia and to the surrounding region. But what did they do? Verse seven, and they were preaching the gospel there. Or as Paul calls the gospel in chapter 13, glad tidings. As we say in God rest ye merry gentlemen, you know, I'm, I'm always thinking like, okay, what is this song about <laughs> at first? And then you're like, oh yeah, it's about Jesus. Yeah. All right. Who are the gentlemen? I don't know. It wasn't to me. Um, but you know, the songs is, oh, tidings of comfort and joy. When you think about the gospel, that's what it's glad tidings of good things, of salvation and of the glory of God, of the grace of God. And so they were there preaching the glad tidings there. You know, and I just, man, I know that these guys that, that preach the gospel, man, they've got an incredible reward in heaven, which they're just going to use to glorify God. They're going to cast these rewards before the, the throne of God. But Daniel chapter 12, verse three tells us that those who win many to righteousness will shine like the stars in the heaven. And these guys, the whole time they were out and about on their missionary trip, there wasn't a moment that they weren't out with a purpose, the purpose of preaching the gospel. The purpose of preaching the gospel. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. I want you to just maybe just note these things about this guy. He, he was without strength in his feet. He was crippled from his mother's womb. He had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And he leapt and he walked. This incredible miracle here where uh, this, this, you know, the gospel of grace, again, is, is uh, validated through this healing. But an incredible thing is this Gentile man who really doesn't have much of a history of God or the power of God is hearing the words of Paul. And, you know, it's just interesting as a, as a pastor, as a preacher, you'll see people and, you know, a lot of people have, they've heard these things and it's exciting, but then there's people that they're getting it for the first time and you can just see their heart melting and, and you can see that they've got faith to be saved. You can see the Lord has granted them this faith, uh, to be saved. And so here's this man who, who is lame from his mother's womb, crippled, never has walked. Paul speaking, sees just this faith and, and, and the man is, is healed by the Holy Spirit. The man is, you know, uh, this, the power of the Lord comes upon him and his feet, you know, you can just think about Acts chapter three and that lame man that Peter and John came across in very similar situation, almost identical. And just the description of the doctor Luke writing, it says immediately his ankle bones received strength and he began to rise up and walk. And if you think about it, it was neat. One of the guys from the church came up to me the last 
uh, last week, two weeks ago. He's just like, man, think about that. When a man's ankles were healed, it wasn't that he just got up and walked and his feet were still all deformed or whatever. But what the Lord did, uh, would it be uh, physiologically? <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, in that body to just bring everything back and those joints being healed and the muscles and the sinews and just everything being brought back to perfection. And that's exactly what's happened. This man had no use of his feet from his mother's womb. And now he's leaping up and walking after that command, stand up straight. I just was remembering as I studied this, you know, my my uh, childhood and even a little bit now, but uh, I always had kind of a poor posture, you know, I was always kind of like, you know, and everyone in my, in all my friends and my uncles and everybody was always stand up straight, stand up straight, stand up straight. I'm trying. Okay. And it was a very difficult thing. You know, and I felt when I was standing up straight, it was a little weird, you know, and, and uh, Hey guys, you know, and uh, it just would frustrate me. I'm trying my best. I don't have any back muscles. Okay. You know, and that would be an annoying command for me. Stand up straight. Here we have this guy. He's like, stand up straight. Stand up. All right. You know, and he leapt up. That action just, man, he, he leapt up. But the beautiful thing about this, as great as the miracle is, that's awesome. Uh, the beautiful thing is, is that this man is a picture of you. This man is a picture of me. We who were lame from our mother's womb. Lame from our mother's womb. From the minute we were born, we were lame spiritually. We were without hope. We had inherited sin through Adam. You know, we had a sinful nature. We were destined for hell. And then we had imputed sin from our actions from that point on. We were in a horrible state, lame from our mother's womb. But when the preacher spoke to us, maybe you'll remember that day when the preacher spoke to you. And as, as uh, John Stott puts it, the, the word of God was bought, brought to bear on your heart by the Holy Spirit. You remember that day? Maybe that's today. The word of God was brought to bear on your heart. You and your lame condition heard the word and were granted faith by the Holy Spirit to believe, to believe and to be saved. This is a picture of you. And maybe it's a picture of you this morning as, you, as you're here today. Maybe you've been around preaching before. You've been around teaching. You've been around church. But you're still lame. You've never through faith received the forgiveness that comes through Jesus. The new life that comes in Christ. The regeneration. You've never been born again. You've been, you've been lame from your mother's womb. But today the Lord says, hey, stand up straight. Stand up straight Get on your feet, but not in your own strength. Receive my strength. I will heal you. I will give you legs. I will give you muscles spiritually. I'll heal you and I'll make you a new creation. And I love 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If your old life and even today you are crippled, you are dead, you are going nowhere spiritually, you have no hope, in this life or the next, today the Holy Spirit is speaking to you saying, stand up straight. We're going to give you an opportunity at the end of the Bible study today to stand up and to receive that healing that Jesus wants to give you today. Do you think it was a humiliating thing for this man to be healed? Stand up straight right now, as Paul said. 
Do you think the man said, oh, no, it's too, too embarrassing. Too embarrassing. No, no. No, no. That's, people will look at me, you know. Like, are you kidding me? Healing in my, my legs that I've never walked before? Forget everybody. I don't care what they think. Boing, you know, ah, you know, such excitement, no matter what anybody thought. And I'll guarantee you, nobody around was critical of the guy. Everybody around was, yeah, oh my gosh, this is incredible. So to you today, I'm going to give you the opportunity to stand for Jesus today, to receive the new life in Christ. And I want you to ask the Lord, Lord, is that me today? Am I lame? Do I need healing today? And don't let the enemy lie to you and say, don't stand up. Don't stand up. It'll be embarrassing. People have thought that you've been righteous this whole time and thought that you were perfect and didn't know you could walk, just thought you were sitting down, or didn't know you couldn't walk, just thought you were sitting down all the time. And don't let anybody know. That's the enemy lying. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that he wants to put strength in your legs breath in your lungs. He wants to take out that old heart of stone and put into you a new heart of, that's a flesh that is soft and sensitive to him. So there's this healing in, uh, in Lystra. And there it says that as the people saw what Paul had done in verse 11, they raised their voice saying in the Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Then the priests of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. So they see this miracle and this sign and this wonder causes them to want to go somewhere, but they don't go to the right place. They don't follow the sign directions. Instead of going to Jesus or wondering about Jesus, they, they go to Zeus and Hermes. Now, it's interesting that they go to this point because in their history, they actually had a legend from a poet that said that Zeus and Hermes, uh, or Mercury is Hermes' other name, uh, that they came down from heaven or wherever it was that they were at, you know, they came down and became men and they walked around in poor beggar clothes and they went from house to house seeking shelter. But every time they went to a house, the door was slammed in their face until finally they came to this little poor old man who let them in and let them stay the night. The next day, Zeus and Hermes went out and slaughtered every family that had shut the door in their face and then went back up to heaven. So that's the history that these people have as Paul and, and, and Barnabas come and they've got these attributes that are kind of like these mythological legends. And, and so they, they default over to mythology and so they began to, you know, worship these guys. Interesting that they were really stoked and excited about these gods who came down from heaven when the message that Paul and Barnabas were bringing was what? A God who came down from heaven, the God who came down from heaven. And yet they weren't excited about Jesus. They wanted, you know, they had a hard heart as Paul later tells them about the God that came down from heaven. But the God is, gods have come down to heaven in the likeness of men. And they come to barbecue this oxen and to have this, you know, this party with Paul and Barnabas. And when they heard this, verse 14, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you. Perhaps as they tore their clothes, they showed their flesh. In grief, they tear the clothes and then they show, we are just men, just like you. 
with same nature as you. And we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them. Turn from these useless things. And notice, whenever you're turning from something, you need to turn to something. They said, he said, turn from the useless things and turn to the God of heaven and earth, the, the true God. Notice he calls this, these idols, these false gods, Zeus and Hermes, what does he call them? Useless things, worth, uh, worthless things. And as you look at the scripture, you see how useless false gods are. You look at Dagon, you know, in 1 Samuel, when the Ark of the Covenant is stolen. And, uh, you know, Dagon, or the, the Ark is uh, placed in the same cave that Dagon, this, I think, frog god type thing is in. And the, the god would keep, this false god kept falling before the Ark of the Covenant. And they'd come in, and what just happened? They'd set him back up, and then they'd leave, and then come back in, and he's fallen, he's broken, you know? And uh, I get this Ark out of here. It's got some crazy mojo about it, you know? And uh, you just see these false gods fall down to our god. You look at Elijah on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings chapter 18 and, and how there was a contest between the false god Baal and Yahweh. And the, you guys know the story. Yahweh came out triumphant big time, not even a competition there. And the false prophets were beheaded. And you read in Isaiah, you know, Isaiah tells the story of uh, this uh, blacksmith. And this blacksmith, you know, he gets his tools and he gets metal and he heats metal up and he molds it and he shapes it and he takes it out of the fire and he hammers it and he puts it back and he makes this God with his own hands and he sets it up and he starts worshiping it. He tells of a, a guy, a lumberjack type guy that goes out into the woods and chops down a tree and deep branches the tree, you know, and brings the, the tree back. And with part of it, he makes a fire and then with part of it, he bakes his bread and then with part of it, he starts carving and he makes this false god and he begins to worship this god. And these gods, they have eyes, but they can't see. Ears they have, but they can't hear. You know, mouths they have, but they can't speak. They're useless, worthless. It's ridiculous. It's illogical that you went and cut the tree down and brought it and carved it all up. And now this thing, as you set it up, it's going to provide for you. Just Romans chapter one tells us, you know, it's the futility of our minds that as we uh, turn from the creator and worship created things, even some things that we've created ourselves. And, uh, and so he just, he calls his at it, calls it as it is. He doesn't water it down and truth is relative and you've had your culture for so long. I don't mean to come in and mess everything up. And, you know, it's cool that you believe that, but we're just not those guys. No, they let him know it's useless stuff and you need to turn from him and turn to the living God. Now notice this was one moment that if these guys wanted to have a little bit of glory or have a little bit of, uh, you know, a pep rally for their pride, this would have been the moment. You know, oh yes, well, you got it a little bit wrong. Well, you know, I'm Hermes and he's Zeus, you know, or you got it a little bit wrong. We're not gods but, you know, we have had a long trip and we sure appreciate your encouragement. And so, you know, let's get this barbecue on, you know. It was their opportunity to get some glory, to get some accolades. So far, the whole trip has been persecution and getting kicked out of cities, you know, whole cities being divided. And, uh, you know, this is, you know, the enemy would like to lie to us and say, you know what, it's been a rough trip. I deserve at least just this little, what, what's the harm in it? The harm in it is that there is one God, God alone, as Isaiah tells us, and he will not share his glory with another. 
All the glory belongs to him. And it's such a lie of the enemy. You know, the, the enemy likes to use persecution to try and, you know, destroy us. But he also likes to use subtle sin from the inside to destroy us. When I was, a, uh, when I was young, uh, we went to uh, Hungary a couple different times. And as I got to know the missionaries in Hungary, they told us that uh, there was a witch coven in Budapest that hated the work that God was doing through Calvary Chapel over there. And so they had a contest within the, co- within the coven uh, to go out and try to make the pastors fall into sexual sin. And uh, you know whoever would win would get this prize. And so these women would go, they'd find out where the pastors lived, and they would go and stand in front of the pastor's door naked. And the pastor would come home from Bible study and there would be this, this seductress there that the enemy was using to cause this, these guys to fall. It's just incredible at what lengths the enemy will, will do to try to get us to fall. And in this case, he's trying to get us to be prideful in ourselves. Or I'll take a little bit of the worship. I'll take a little bit of the credit. But, you know, Paul and Barnabas, they came out victorious. You know, they were able to be mirrors and reflect the glory off of themselves and point it all to Jesus. As they preach the gospel to these Gentiles who didn't have a history of Judaism, didn't have a history of knowing Yahweh. And so you'll notice Paul's message here. It's a little bit different than what we've been reading so far in the book of Acts that all had, you know, Israel's history in it. Uh, here he just begins to talk to them about the creator. He says, turn to the living God at the end of verse 15, who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all the things that are in them. And so he declared to them the creator. You know, I encourage you guys to get brushed up, brushed up on, on some uh, creation science and to be able to show how the, the splendor of creation shows uh, it just directs the majest, to the majesty of God, to his power. But, you know, he uses creation. He says, turn to the God who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, all the things that are in them. In bygone generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. In a couple chapters, in chapter 17, we'll see. But now he calls everyone to repent. And then in verse 17, nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness and that he did good. He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. So while these guys may have never had the, the, you know, the Jewish prophets, you know, the whole time they've had creation, as Romans tells us, which is a testimony of a creator, just as a watch you know, and all of its complexities as evidence that someone designed it, someone put it together, or a building, or whatever it might be, a vehicle. Someone designed it, someone crafted it, someone put it together. So is the world as you look at it, and all of its intricacies, it all points to a creator. <clears throat> and not only is there a creator, but he's a good creator, as verse 17 tells us, that, you know, he didn't leave man without witness. But his goodness has been sustaining man. You know, he's given them crops. He's given them rain from heaven. He's been filling them and giving them food. And, you know, so often we forget that every good and and perfect thing, it's a gift from, from God. It's all grace. It's all grace. Isn't that interesting that God is even gracious to the wicked? As Romans chapter 5 says, you know, it's the same God. God causes the sun to rise for the just and the unjust. He causes rain to come down from heaven for the just and the unjust. You know, he stops men from even more wickedness by his grace. 
You know, by his grace, he keeps wicked men from just completely obliterating each other. Because that's what would happen if God's grace wasn't withholding. You read in 1 Samuel chapter 17 uh, about David with Nabal and Abigail. And, and David, you know, wanted to destroy the wicked man Nabal. But three different times it says that the Lord withhold Nabal from doing more wicked and withheld David from killing him. The, the grace of God withholds some situations from getting worse. Anything that's good, we point to God. We point to his grace because in us, nothing good dwells. And all of this is a testimony of God. You know, Romans tells us that the goodness of God leads us to repentance. Because he's good, we want to love him. Because he's good, we want to get rid of all the, the crud that we have, and we want to love him and worship him more. Don't despise that goodness. Don't despise that long-suffering. It's the goodness of God that brings us to repentance. And so, uh, as he preached that, verse 18, with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. You know, it's kind of an interesting end to the story because you don't really know what happened. It's almost like they still kind of had a little bit, you know, it's like, you know, they're just trying to get these guys to stop this worship fest, this hero worship. And they could scarcely get the guys to stop. And then Jews from Antioch, which if you've got your Bible map, you know that that was one of the first places they visited in Galatia. The Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. These guys were so bent on destroying Paul and Barnabas that they followed them. You know, they followed them to destroy their ministry. And they came there having persuaded the multitude. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. So imagine what's going on in Paul. I mean, imagine the feeling of, of being stoned by these massive boulders that would, that would kill you. And perhaps did kill him. They drug him out. They supposed him to be dead. It doesn't say that he wasn't dead. And in, uh, I believe it's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, you read about Paul uh, telling about a man. He's kind of insinuating that it's him who passed away and went to the third heaven. Yeah, it's not like a Mormon thing. That's, you know, there's three different heavens in the scripture. There's kind of like the sky that's blue and has the clouds in it. Then there's the heavens of the, um, you know, you got all the planets and the sun, moon, and the stars. Then the third heaven is like where the throne room of God is. And Paul mentions that I saw things there that, you know, it would be sinful for me to even talk about. Just so incredible. And uh, so perhaps he was dead here. And imagine the heart of, of the disciples around him. Imagine the heart of Barnabas. Imagine, oh my goodness, you know, here's like our leader guy and he's dead now. And we on our first missionary journey. We're like a year into it. What are we going to do now? And as they gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. You know, it doesn't say he rose up and got the heck out of Dodge. No, he rose up and he went back into the city that he was just stoned, killed, perhaps, and drug out of. Can anybody whistle the Rocky theme song right now? You know, uh, I mean, whoa, you know, you sure you don't want to go that way? No, he's heading back into the city. And how inspiring must that have been? For, you know, these new disciples. Again, he's showing his passion to the world. He's showing his love to the world. He's showing that their souls are valuable and they're worth him being beat up and stoned and mocked and division and even people gossiping about him. And you know what? You're, my, you're acting like my enemies and you deserve me to 
curse you guys and get out of here. But the grace of God is telling me, you know what? The grace that I received while I was still an enemy, I'm going to show to them. I was God's enemy. He showed me grace. Right now they're acting like my enemy. I'm going to show them grace. I'm going back in there. And he stayed there for another day. Guys, that shows the world passion. When we love our enemies, when we bless those who curse us. You know, when, we, when Jesus says to bless those that curse you, and Romans chapter 12 goes even, you know, even more, just bless those that curse you. You know, that actually means actively seeking out their benefit. Sometimes we think blessing those that curse us means, well, I just won't retaliate. I just won't punch them back. I just won't do anything worse than what they did to me. But bless those that curse you actually means actively seek out the benefit of your uh, enemy. And here he did. He got up, picked the pebbles out of his ear, got the dust off, you know, and went back in there. And, you know, man, I think Hebrews chapter 11 is right. You know, the world is not worthy of Paul. But, man, I'm so glad that Paul, he had a nature just like me. It was the Holy Spirit that made Paul the man that he was. And I long, I long for that spirit. I long for the power of the Holy Spirit in that way to be upon me. And so the next day he departed with Barnabas and he went into Derby. And so uh, next week we'll pick up on the finishing of that first missionary journey. And why don't we go ahead and close our Bibles and uh, Stuart can come back up. And during this time of just song to the Lord, let's just let his word sink in and be the agent that just gets rid of the corrosion in our hearts and gets rid of the hardness of our heart. And let him put in a soft heart, moldable. Lord, we pray today that you would give us a passion for you. We confess we can't muster up a passion. We can't be just really grit our teeth and try to get it done. Lord, that'll just, that'll fade away by this afternoon. Lord, we want to be able to speak in such a way like Paul. We want to let our lives be an example of love, Lord, that we would be willing to crawl across broken glass across Prineville if, if, if it meant one sinner coming to know you. I confess that heart's just not in me, Lord, and I want that heart to be in me. Pour out your spirit upon us, Lord, that we could do that. Lord, we recognize the world around us is perishing. There are souls that are going to hell. But the fields are ripe with harvest. Send us, Lord, to be laborers out into the harvest fields. Lord, for those in this place that are lame, I pray right now you would just be strongly convicting their hearts and showing them their lameness, but that you are strong and able to heal and able to restore and able to make all things new. But I pray that they would just be proud to stand right now. They would be glad to stand. They would be so excited to stand. Lord, as they take inventory of their life and just see the, the lameness and the paralysis, the impotency, as they see just how sin is destroying their life. Lord, that they look at the, the opposite, 
Lord, that you want to heal their life, that you want to empower them to walk and leap and praise you and soar like an eagle and be useful. Lord, we want to be mirrors that reflect your glory. Let us never fall into that temptation of of keeping a little glory for ourselves, keeping a little bit of accolade. Oh, I deserve that. Lord, I don't deserve it. I didn't do anything. We didn't do anything. It's your grace. It's your goodness. We walk in that today. As we sing this last song, if you're lame today, Stand. I know often in the last song, we all stand up together. Just during this song, as, as we sing these words, if the Holy Spirit's been knocking on the door of your heart, you know if he is. Stand up today. Nothing to be ashamed of. We will rejoice with you as you stand. And let the Lord put strength, strength in your, in your spiritual legs. Let him heal you. Let him restore. Let him make all things new. But don't harden your heart against him. Don't be the clay that is hardened by the sun. Today be the wax. And stand during this song. And as you do, just say, Lord Jesus, just as Paul preached to this lame man, And the lame man heard and knew that he was talking to him. Lord, today I hear and I know you're talking to me. I know that I'm lame. I know that I'm powerless. I know that the direction my life is going right now is going to end in destruction and death. But Lord, today, through faith, I receive the healing that your scripture talks about. Forgive me of my sins. And wash me as white as snow. I want to be a Christian. I want my life to be lived for you. I declare you today to be the Lord of my life and the Savior of my life. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further on our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.